Hello, my name is Cory, and welcome to the Mongol Empire podcast. I hope everyone is keeping fit and well in these uncertain times. This is not episode 3.5 of The Rise of Temujin. That will be back in the very near future. Instead, I present an episode on a subject that I've been talking about looking at for a little while. This is the history of the Karaid tribe. In the mid to late 12th century, the Karaid were the dominant power in central Mongolia, and after 1162, included many of the important Mongol clans in their number. As a result, the influence of the tribe was the most important factor in Temujin's rise to power. Their Khan, Togril, took Temujin under his wing, providing protection and the connections he needed to grow his own reputation. It turns out that the Karayid are also one of the few tribes that have had a definitive history constructed. So for this episode, I've drawn heavily on Chen Deji's article, The Karayid Kingdom Up to the 13th Century, supplemented with L.N. Gumilev's Searches for an Imaginary Kingdom, and the primary sources, The Jamial Taravik by Rashid al-Din, and Witfogel and Feng's A History of Liao. If you can get hold of Chen Deji's article, I highly recommend it. It can be found in the book Chinese Scholars on in Asia, edited by Liu Jin and Roger Covey. Chen Deji draws on a huge amount of material published by Chinese and Japanese scholars, and uses primary sources which aren't readily available to Western audiences. As always, the sources used in this episode will be added to the master bibliography on mongolempirepodcast.com, so check it out there. According to the analysis provided by Chen Deji, we are able to identify the Karaid tribe from the middle of the 9th century. The Uyghur Khanate was the dominant power in northwest China and the steppe until 840, when the Kyrgyz sacked their capital at Ordu Balik, killing the Khan and scattering the nation. It's generally been assumed that these Kyrgyz then settled in the region, but there is actually little evidence of it happening. Instead, we see that by 924, the Kyrgyz have been pushed back to their homeland around the Yenisei River, and an alliance of Tartars have moved in. These Tartars, much like the Tartars of the 12th century, were originally located in eastern Mongolia. But the power vacuum created by the Kyrgyz conquest allowed them to gradually spread west. The spread of the Tartar clans created two distinct branches, with the western Tartars becoming known as the Zubu in Chinese sources. The migration of the Zubu into land previously held by the Uyghur saw them initially settle around the Kangai Mountains and the upper reaches of the Orkhon River in central Mongolia. In addition to the Chinese sources, we have Mahmud al-Kashgari's Turkish Dictionary, which was completed in 1070. It states that a group of Tartars lived in the Kangai Mountain region. They had their own language, but also spoke good Turkish and this must be referring to the Zubu. The mix of Turkish and Mongolian elements is consistent with what we know about the 12th century Karaid tribe, who continued to use Turkish, Mongolian and Christian names in their society. A potted history of the Zubu can be made from information provided by the Chinese source, History of the Liao. Starting in 924, Abaoji, the founder of the Liao dynasty, came through the region and is reported to have fought only one tribe, the Zubu. 
This brought the tribe into the Keaton sphere of influence, where they would stay, albeit rather begrudgingly at times, until the fall of the dynasty. In 946, Liao Emperor Taizong named Zubu Chief Hela as Grand Prince of the Tribe, thus giving the Zubu standing in the empire and responsibility for maintaining the peace in the north and west. This arrangement seems to have lasted for nearly 40 years, until 982 when an alliance of Zubu clans started a rebellion that would last until 1004, when the Liao finally regained control built a series of fortifications in the region, and installed a military commissioner to oversee the tribes. At this point, the Korea had entered into the consciousness of the Christian world. Gregory Bar Hebraeus, a Mafrian in the Eastern Orthodox Church, and Bishop of Gubos, which is in modern-day Turkey, noted in his Chronicum Ecclesiasticum that a Khan of the Koreat got lost on the steppe and was rescued by a vision of St. Sergius, once reunited with his tribe, he sent someone to the Nestorian Bishop of Merv to obtain a priest to baptise himself and his tribe. The date of the mass baptism is given by Bar Hebraeus as 1009 and involved some 200,000 Koreid people. The source implicitly states that the tribe's name was the Koreid, or the Koreid. Whilst that isn't really enough to definitively link them with the Zubu, it is quite a coincidence that the event happened soon after the conclusion of the rebellion. The number involved in the baptism, although probably inflated, suggests that despite being defeated by the Liao, the Koreid or Zubu were still a strongly unified entity. Returning to the history of the Liao, the Khitan were forced to expand the number of centrally appointed military commissioners as the Zubu regained their strength, and the peace did not last long. In 1012, one group of the Zubu murdered their commissioner and fled to the region around Ordu Balik, spreading into the area that is currently held by Togril Khan in the 12th century. Very little about the Zubu is mentioned between 1012 and 1089, but we have evidence for the continuation of Christian traditions instituted by the baptism of 1009. The history of Liao notes that one Zubu leader was called Yugunnan which is the Chinese transliteration for Yohannan, and in 1089 we are introduced to Mogusi, or Marcus, Togaril's grandfather. In this year, Marcus was appointed as head of the Zubu tribes by the fantastically named Pacification Commissioner of the Northwest Route. Three years later, a different Pacification Commissioner mistook Marcus's peaceful tribe for the rebellious one he was actually pursuing, and attacked him. Unsurprisingly, this incompetence led to Marcus rebelling, and joining a coalition that included tribes we have encountered, such as the Neyman and the Burkitt. It isn't clear whether Marcus was the leader of this alliance, but he did inflict a large number of defeats on the Liao army. He was finally captured in 1100, and put to death. Rashid al-Din records the event. Quote, at that time, the Tatar tribes were enormously powerful and strong, but they submitted to the monarchs of Cathay and the Jurchids. When they had the chance, the king of the Tatars captured Marcus and sent him to the king of the Jurchids, who had him killed by being nailed to a wooden donkey. End quote. Rashid al-Din mixes up a few facts here, including who ruled northern China, but the story is plausible. 
It also highlights the fact that the Mongol and Koreid were natural allies, sharing a hatred of the Tartar. Whilst the Tartar tribe would get their comeuppance a century or so later, the widow of Marcus was apparently able to get some revenge pretty quickly. She sent a message to the Tartar, saying that she wanted to hold a banquet for the Khan, offering a hundred sheep, ten mares, and a hundred large bags of kumis, which were instead filled with armed and angry warriors. Thinking that this was some kind of Koreid submission, the Tartar Khan accepted. As the banquet went on, the bags of kumis were brought forward, the Koreid soldiers jumped out and slaughtered everyone, including the Khan. Despite the death of Marcus at the hands of the Liao, the Koreid or Zubu returned to being loyal vassals of the Khitan, and remained so until the dynasty fell to the Jin in 1125. As the Jurchin closed in on the Liao Emperor, a Khitan general named Yellow Dashi attempted to build a new power base north of the Gobi Desert, with the aim of initially resisting the invaders and then reclaiming the lost empire, and the Koreid were almost certainly part of this. However, his attempts to stall the Jurchin conquest failed, and as the Jin announced the foundation of their dynasty, Yellow Dashi took a small band of followers and moved out west, where he founded the Karakutai. At this point, we will drop the Zubu name, and just call the tribe the Koreid. Rashid al-Din notes that there were five major clans within the tribe, named Jurgin, Donkayet, Tubigan, Albat, and Koreid, whom the tribe are named after. Whether the name Koreid was a personal name used by the tribesmen prior to the mid-12th century is unknown, it seems. It may be the case that the name Zubu also represented a powerful clan, and much like Koreid, came to represent the entire tribe, and then just stuck until the Liao power disappeared. I have no evidence for this theory, so there may be an actual reason which I've completely overlooked. If that's the case, get in touch with the show and let me know. I'm open to suggestions. As we explored in episode 2... The defeat of the Liao also meant the end of direct imperial control over the steppe. The Jin were focused on their southern neighbours, the Song, and only intervened militarily when a tribe grew too powerful and threatened the northern frontier. Now there seems to be a bit of a gap between the death of Marcus and the elevation of his son Kyriakus, or Syriacus, to Khan. Kyriakus had many wives and concubines, who provided him with 40-plus sons. The eldest of these was Togaril. As a contemporary of Temujin's father Yesugai, Togaril was probably born in the 1130s. His childhood was rough. Age seven, he was captured by the Merkit and forced to pound grain in a mortar. He was released by his father. But aged 13, the Koreid suffered a much more serious reverse at the hands of the Tatar. The Tatar claimed most of the Koreid territory, and enslaved large number of people, including Togrul and his mother. The defeat was so bad that the Koreid Khan Sarik was forced to take his remaining 40 men to the Neyman and ask for help. An alliance was agreed, and was sealed by the marriage of Kyriakus to one of the daughters of the Neyman Khan. Togrul's salvation varies depending on which source you read. Rashid al-Din states that he was rescued by the Neyman Alliance, but the secret history says that he was forced to herd camels and managed to escape, leaving his mother behind. Whichever way he regained his freedom, 
he returned to a tribe that had been restored, and which had increased in size thanks to the liberation of some Mongol prisoners. It seems likely that the alliance of the Noman quickly broke down. Perhaps due to the marriage and military support provided, there may have been an assumption that the Karayid were now a junior partner of the Naaman, and their Khan said, quote, I have breathed life back into your dead soul by means of many men, and I have caused your scattered flock to stand where flocks are caused to stand at noon, meaning I have trusted you and rescued you from the enemy. But a human being is forgetful, just as the earth is ever-changing. Henceforth, you and the Mongols be my friends, and you work for me. End quote. After hearing this, Sarek Khan is reported to have taken his people away from the Neyman pretty sharpish. Kuryakus' rule as Khan seems to represent the beginning of a period of instability for the Karayid. The tribe was riddled with factionalism, which was entirely due to his large family and different members trying to gain advantage over each other. To try and combat this, he divided the Karayid territory into three portions, holding one for himself giving the second part to be shared between his younger brother Gurkhan and his son Togaril, and the third part was shared between two other sons, Tai Timur Teishi and Eula Margus. It didn't help that wives and concubines were also jostling for favoured position in Kuryakus's yurt. It was reported that the wife he obtained from the Neyman Alliance practised magic which he used to unseat Kuryakus from his horse every time he went hunting. Of course, it could have nothing to do with the cumis he probably drank. He ordered two concubines to kill his wife. Then, to conceal his actions from his sons, he murdered the concubines. I think the word to use for Kuriakus's reign is chaotic. All of these strained relationships came to a head at the death of Kuriakus, as what was essentially a civil war erupted. Leading the conflict was Togaril, as he moved quickly to try to secure his position as Khan. He started by offering Taitima and Eula Margus an olive branch, but when they arrived at his camp, he attacked them. They managed to escape to the Merkit tribe, whose leader, despite refusing to get involved in career politics, arrested them and sent them back to Togaril, who executed them. Alarmed, his uncle, Gurkhan, raised his forces in response to Togarul's actions, and managed to defeat and chase him away, claiming control of the Karayid for himself. As Togarul fled with a hundred men, he came across Yesugai, who welcomed him into his camp. Yesugai and Togarul became Anda, despite the protestations and advice of the Mongol leader Cthulhu Khan, who after all urged Yesugai not to make the commitment, because Togarul was known for killing his brothers, which, remember, is worse than murdering and abandoning children. Together, they raided Gurkhan, driving him away and restoring Togarul as the head of the Karayid. And from here on in, Togarul's position as Khan was pretty much consolidated. As always, the dating of these events is a little bit uncertain, and the primary sources often provide conflicting information about when they took place. Case in point, is the event surrounding another brother, Urkakara. Apparently he was intimidated by Togarul's power, so he fled to the Neyman, who were happy to get rid of Togarul and perhaps gain some influence over the Karayid. They managed to drive him off once more, but we have Rashid al-Din 
giving us two conflicting stories. The first, that he was restored to power by Yesugai. The second, that it was Temujin who did it. There is a possibility that this event took place later than Rashid Adin initially suggests, and in fact relates to the restoration of Togaril just prior to the attack on the Tatar in 1196, in which case it would absolutely be Temujin doing the saving. And this really brings us up to date with the events of the regular series. From this point on, Togaril's life and that of the Korea tribe are tied up in the greater Mongol story. One real final point though of interest is that the Koreid come out of the secret history as one of the few tribes to retain a positive reputation. And despite his actions against Temujin, Togril is honoured for his role as a mentor and a father to the Mongol Khan. The way his death plays out is genuinely lamented. So that was the history of the Koreid tribe. And I hope you enjoyed this break from the regular story. Where there is enough information, I will probably look to do something similar for each of the nations encountered by Chinggis Khan, as I feel it gives a bit more context to the period. So, your next episode will be 3.5 of the Rise of Temujin, which I hope to get out very, very soon. In the meantime, I am planning and implementing a few changes to mongolempirepodcast.com to make it look a little bit more professional, and also to continue develop resources so keep an eye out for all of that. I will also provide a transcript of this episode as a biography of the Koreid on the website. As always, you can contact the show by email, which is Cory, that's C-O-R-E-Y, at mongolempirepodcast.com, or I am very vaguely on Twitter, at mongolempirepod. Until next time, though, take care, and thanks for listening.